This is Leaders Who Scale, and I'm Jeff Siegel. I've worked with thousands of companies over the years, and I'm fascinated by seeing how many of them grow and scale. Join me as we learn from the leaders of growing companies and share that knowledge. Leaders Who Scale is sponsored by Siegel Solutions, providing world-class accounting, advisory, and QuickBooks and Acumatica Cloud ERP services. Today's guest is a leader, an entrepreneur, and a motivator. He's an innovator in the landscape industry, former president of the Massachusetts Association of Landscape Professionals. He's also a member of the Boston chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization. Since forming his company in 2006 with his brother, Andy, he's grown to over 55 full-time employees and over 100 employees during the winter season. He's the co-owner and president of Landscape America. I want to welcome Doug McDuff. How are you doing, hey, Doug? Doug? Excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to have you here, too. Um, love to hear some of the challenges of, of, of growing your company. Um, so really, kind of the, the first question I ask everyone is, what is the most challenging aspect of growing and scaling your company? Well, in recent years, the biggest challenge for us has been staffing. Um, you know, there's a, there's a small labor pool out there that we're pulling from and we're competing with we're competing with electricians and plumbers and other landscape companies and, and so forth. Um, you know, we, we've recently just hired a new position on to help us with that challenge. I would say other, other challenges are, are employee engagement, um, just connecting with our team members and making sure that the, the team that's actually doing the work on the ground for our customers, um, they, have a, a, they have some motivation behind it. They have a why about what they're doing and they can connect the dots between you know, their behaviors on a daily basis and their actions and, you know, our gross profit and how it affects our financials. So, so how do you actually do that? Cause your team, they're out in the field every day. I assume do you, do you, you know, um, I guess it's promoting some kind of a culture, I would assume. And I don't know. How, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's driving our culture to um, create a, create a feeling of ownership thinking amongst the team and because we have a distributed workforce, meaning they come into the shop in the morning, they grab their keys, their work order, and they're, they're gone. They take off with the truck and, you know, we hope they come back at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> with a truck too, right? With the truck, yeah. Um, so working with the team that, that is distributed, we have to make sure that we're giving them an, uh, this environment where they can, you know, they can be creative, but also they can... Uh, understand that, you know, if they do a particular job a certain way, that it's going to affect the company in a positive or negative way, and they can reap the benefits of some of that. So for our company, we introduced open book management um, back about, this is our fourth season doing it. And um, the idea of open book management is business is a team sport. And so we're trying to constantly engage the team and get them to have I guess, uh, economic engagement too, or understanding the, how the financials impact them and how they impact the financials and so forth. Um, and we do that through a lot of messaging with the team. We forecast um, our financials every week and we try to make sure everyone on the team has an opportunity to see the financials, understand them. And then we give out certain tips about how they can, you know, maybe do something differently this week to affect our gross profit dollars in a positive way. Um, Again, we're just constantly trying to drive that 
or connect the dots between you know what they're doing and 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 our financials. Are they incentivized by helping the numbers or knowing the numbers? Uh, like you mentioned, trying to you know um, achieve maybe a better gross profit, um, things like that. I mean, how does that uh, impact? Does it impact them directly? It does. So we build a budget every year, just like most companies. Um, and then once we finish our budget, we look at how much gross profit dollars we're going to generate as an organization. And my brother and I make a decision if, if we're able to generate X amount of gross profit dollars, how much of that can we give back to the team in a bonus? Mm-hmm. And so from there, we create um, a spreadsheet that basically has a sliding scale on it about how many um, gross profit dollars the company generates and how many hours of a bonus each team member will get. So they're there and it's displayed on a weekly basis. It, it gets updated every week when we, when we forecast our financials. And so any team member can go up to this, this Excel spreadsheet, essentially, um, you know, look and see, all right, we're at this amount of gross profit dollars. So my bonus for quarter two would be X. And then we do the same thing for quarters three, four, and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it direct, what they do directly impacts the bottom line and, um, it's all inclusive though. It's also how we bid work. Um, you know, the salespeople are, are incentivized to bid projects at a good gross margin because if we're selling work for, for cheap and we're not making gross profit dollars, it affects their bonus as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all inclusive. So I guess when you, um, you know, because everyone's incentivized with gross margin and gross profit, your, uh, your bidding process, you have to be really, uh, you know, careful about the jobs you take on and the, the profit that you um, generate from those. You only have so much time in, in a summer or winter or whatever, however that time period is. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, the team members aren't going to be particularly happy if the work that they're producing has a low gross margin because they, they know, um, you know, every week they'll see the financial impact of it. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's creating that, that symbiotic relationship between our production and our sales team. And they both have to work together and, you know, work hard as a team to win is one of our core values. And so, um, you know, it's a mantra that we, we preach. And I think our team's done a really good job at making sure that that's something that they all stick to and they all want, they all want to work to the same co- common, you know, cause. Yeah. Is there really, um, is there, do you notice the team out in the field will come forward with suggestions on maybe, um, I don't want to use the word cutting corners because you never do that, but really looking at different ways to do a job so that the margin may be a little better at times, whether it's different materials or uh, quicker time, you know, maybe labor cutting the hours down to get the job done faster. Do you, do you see a little bit more of that type of um, atmosphere with the team members? Yeah, we do. So every, every week when we do this, this forecast for open book, um, you know, there's eight managers in the room and each one has a number to report on revenue and uh, for a specific service and then the costs associated with that service. Um, and the reason I say that is because every week we invite two of the crew members to this meeting so they can kind of see the process and understand, you know, what, what goes on sort of behind the scenes, if you will. Um, last year, we had an intern actually that was sitting through this um, and, and she made the recommendation that we had a three person crew on this particular job. And she said, look, I don't think my time's being um, appropriately on this, on this project. I don't think I need to be there. I think I can 
do a better job somewhere else. I think this crew can do the work with two people. And, you know, the production manager looked at the time and made an adjustment. And, you know, we did much better on that job completing it the next month or so because we didn't need that third person. So, wow. yeah, I think it, it is driving that thought process that, you know, a lot of times as owners and managers, you know, we're not necessarily listening to the crew and they don't feel comfortable saying, hey, this isn't working and maybe we should make an adjustment. Um, and for us, this has given us an opportunity to communicate back and forth and given our team members that voice to be able to say, hey, here's here's what I'm seeing. And then we can make an adjustment and go forward. So I think it does drive that thought process. Yeah, I'm really I'm kind of curious about this open book management. How how deep do you go into the numbers with the team? Is it very like a high level, like revenue, you know, direct cost margin? Or do you actually get into, you know, operational expenses and things like that? So with our with the forecasting team, we talk about specifics for labor, subcontractors, materials, um, equipment, fuel, all that. Um, anything that is uh, from revenue down to our gross profit. So we okay. talk about that in that particular group. And um, so we don't necessarily talk about overhead with that group. We don't yeah. we don't go over those those um, administrative costs or anything like that. But with the field team, we we try to keep it more simplified. Um, and so we talk mostly about revenue and then we try to, again, like connect the dots between projects with them and so forth. So uh, we, we don't want to get too far in the weeds with some of the discussions. And it's not because we're, we don't want to be transparent. It's just because we don't want to be confusing. Um, but we do once a year, um, sometimes twice a year, we do like an economic engagement class with our whole team. And so we'll, have you ever heard of the pennies game? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Yeah. So it's a, it's an exercise we do with our team where we give everyone a hundred pennies. And so we explain to them like, all right, you sold a job for a hundred dollars. Now you have to pay for the labor. And so how much does labor cost? Okay. Now pay for the materials and how much does that cost now pay for the subcontractors. And we go through that process and we say, okay, now what's left is gross profit. And then we dive into the overhead costs. And so we talk, to, we talk about you know, insurance and electrical bills and uh, all, all, that, all the things that no one thinks of when they bid a job, just to tr try to help the team understand you know, all the costs that go into it. And you know, as we do this, we ask them you know, where they're at you know, with, with how much money they have left. And right. it's, it's, it's really interesting and funny to hear you know, some team members, uh, they run out of money like partway through the of the exercise and, and others think you have 50 pennies left at the end of the job. I mean, at the end of the day, and it's like, yeah. no, we, you know, our, our average net profit is, you know, we, we shoot for 10%. So if we can make 10%, we're happy at the end of the day. And so we, we, um, we, we try to teach the team that all these things go into that. And so that, that's kind of how we engage them, but it's not necessarily a weekly um, exercise yeah. with them. We, we more or less stay on that gross profit and then the costs of goods sold. Yeah, no, that's good because you you don't want them to think like, oh, gross profit is X and where's all the rest of the money go? The owners are taking out all this money, you know, we're yeah. working hard. So right. that, that game sounds like it's it's actually pretty good that they, they go through that. Um, so I and how did you actually get it? Because you said you started it, what, four years ago, I think? Yes. How did yeah. you kind of hear about it? Because I haven't talked to too many people who, you know, a couple of years back, I remember open book management was a thing that came out and everybody talked about it, but I actually haven't heard much about it probably in like five or seven years, just 
just talked about the companies I, I work with. So I'm curious how you were led on to start using this process and, you know, how it's worked out. And it sounds like it's working out great. Um, what brought you to that point, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, for us, it's been it's been a game changer. Um, so we hired a, a business coach, Dan Foley, who's sort of, he's been in the landscape industry. He, his coaching isn't necessarily uh, landscape specific, but he, he was in the industry, he sold his business uh, 12 or 13 years ago. Um, and so he's been a coach for us for leadership for the past, you know, five or six years, he had implemented open book management in his company. And so he kind of pitched the idea to us. We read a few books um, by Jack Stack. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the book right now, but Jack Stack wrote a great book. And then he's had a few afterwards uh, that he wrote as well about open book management or open book coaching, if you will. And so we, um, we liked the idea and I was choosing between going that route or going with uh, the EOS model. Um, Cause I wanted to implement some sort of, mm-hmm. some sort of like um, philosophy in our business at that point, but I didn't want to tackle them both at the same time. And right. um, I felt like for us, just having that, that financial backing and understanding uh, was really important. And then that employee engagement piece of it was really important too, like connecting down to that team members I've discussed. So uh, that's why we went the open book management route. Not to say that we won't tackle EOS at some point, um, mm-hmm. but for us, that's that's what we did four years ago, and it, it has been truly, you know, a game yeah. changer for us. Yeah, I think you could definitely. We do EOS here, and it's you know based on what I know about it because we're doing it. You could actually do them both at the same time because EOS will. Um, for us, a lot of it is on the human capital side you know the accountability chart and how you know introducing core values and how our you know team members align with those values so we rate them you know and work on the team members that may not you know give us you know live and live and breathe the the values that we want them to and so it's it's actually it's good for us you know it's interesting the open book management even you know the more we talk about it could be something that we look at ourselves you know because we're trying like you we're scaling growing and it sounds like it'd be a great um addition to what we do on top of our the eos side so kudos um but i, I want to ask you about the early days because you started with your brother was it just the two of you and, and kind of did, did you go into this the both of you to, you know, to scale and grow, or was it kind of a, just kind of grew uh, organically. And then you said, Hey, you know, this, this is working. Let's, let's kind of intentionally do this. I'm just curious how the, the early days were. Cause I assume you were out there landscaping and hardscaping and doing, doing it, living it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was, when I was probably 22 out of college, um, I was working for a company called Hartney Graymont out of Needham uh, mass. And, it, we were, it was a good sized tree and landscape company at the time. And I had been there through college um, for internships and so forth. And so I was, I was doing landscape construction. I was out there installing the work. Um, and my brother had come on board with that company too. So the two of us were there. And I think by the time I got to maybe 24, I'd asked to get into a sales role at mm-hmm. the company. And, uh, you know, my manager said, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing well, but we, you know, I don't think you're, you're ready for sales yet. And I was full of piss and vinegar and I thought I, I knew best. So I, I, you know, I gave him my notice and bought a 
you know, bought a dump truck and a mower. And I started, I started trying to take on accounts at that point. And my brother left just a few weeks later. Uh, and so that's kind of how we started out with Landscape America. So, um, and in the early days, we were both out in the field doing the work. Um, yeah. the, the mentality was always to scale the business. You know, that's why I, I kind of brainstormed the idea of having a big name where, hence where the name Landscape America came from. I wanted to be able to bid bigger jobs from the start. And I wanted to have sort of the, the, the name that sounded like we were bigger than we were. And, and it still does, I think, you know, we still get that from people. They ask, you know, are you guys national? Are you guys a franchise or whatever? So that was kind of the appealing part of, of naming it Landscape America. Um, and we did, we did grow rapidly, especially at the beginning. We, you know, it started out Andy and myself and three years in, we were doing a million dollars in revenue. And um, at that point I got out of sales and got out of the field and, and uh, I'm sorry, not out of sales. I got out of the field and was doing primarily just the sales and the management piece of it. Um, and Andy came out of the field a couple of years later to help me manage the business. And we have, we've, we've grown every year since then, um, except for 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like everybody else, <laughs> I, I had a, I have a client now that they, um, they were doing 30 million in before, you know, 2020 and dropped to like two. They're an event kind wow. of event management company. Obviously they're coming back up, but it was like just a major hit for them. So, um, but you're, you're here today and it's you're still growing, uh, which is great. Um, but it sounded like you had to, like most of the people I talked to, there's a point where they, um, they, have to get out of working in the business and, and work more on the business. And maybe like you said, that was probably like three years in four years in, you're like, you, you, you pulled yourself out of the field as well as your brother and started really kind of working on the business. Even It was growing already. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of, that's kind of cool. A lot of people don't know when to do that. sounds like you did it at the right time. Probably. Yeah. 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Sounds like, yeah. So tell me about your, your team. Cause it's your brother, Andy, it's you, and you have a core team that you, um, you kind of meet with on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And, and, uh, I'll just back up for a second because I do think there's something in what you said that's important because I, I did feel like I was out of the, like I was working on the business back in 2009 and 10 and so forth. I felt yeah. like I was, but really I had just created this, um, <laughs> I'd created so much urgency around the sales piece of it that I was so focused on that to feed the monster. And it took me a long time to really start to, uh, while I was working on the business part-time, I had such a, such a, um, a monkey in my back with the sales piece of it that it took me up until like two years ago to actually get out of the sales piece and really focus on running the business and growing the business and scaling it and so forth. And so we were kind of doing all that stuff at once. And, and I had my attention spread between a bunch of different things, Yeah. Uh, but the sales piece was what was, that was really what was, what was uh, taking the majority of my time up and keeping me from focusing on the business. And hmm. so I can, I can get into it a little bit. It was, there was a big model shift of like our, our business model that came about yeah. like four years ago or so. Um, 
And so I'm sorry, Jeff, what was the question you had asked? No, no, actually, no, I actually, I want to just stay on this topic because this is actually an interesting one because it kind of happens to all of us because we're, we're like the master of our trade. And we think sometimes we just know more than anyone else in our business sometimes. And, and um, it, it is a hard shift and it's I'm actually curious because it did it take you, took you a while. Um, but when you're talking to a client or a customer, you know, how do you, how do you move your knowledge to somebody else so you can work on the business? Cause you were in sales for all those years and probably, you know, like me, I still do sales. I'm still growing, but I'm still kind of get pulled into a, some sales uh, calls and things like that. And it's only because I think no one else sometimes has the knowledge I have, which may be just a fallacy, right? Maybe just being the owner of my company, that that's the way I feel. So I'm curious how you, you really kind of intentionally made the shift out of sales and how that went. Was that difficult? Um, did you have to, did it take you a while to find the person or people that could replace you in that role? Yeah. yeah, it was, it was really um, probably a two, it was like a two year onboarding of a new salesperson to try to help um, yeah, probably more like three years, actually, by the time that they were actually doing the majority of the sales. But at the same time, we reduced the size of the business on what I was selling. So we do design build work, which is construction. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of our service lines. And then we do maintenance and snow. And so I was predominantly selling design build. And for years and years, that was the biggest piece of our business was the construction side. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for a long time, I knew in the back of my head and I knew from like going to seminars and conferences and talking to other people that really building that recurring revenue model was, was how we would ultimately scale the business. But I was so entrenched in that design build work because I was the I was the chief salesperson and most of our revenue was coming from that. So it was really hard for me to break free of, you know, not selling all that work. And so it took me a while. I finally made the decision to, all right, we're going to, we're going to reduce the size of our design build business and plan to grow our maintenance and snow at the same time. So I, I actually had to hire, um, I had to hire an accounts manager to help with the maintenance side someone to take care of those clients that we already had. I had to hire a business developer to grow the maintenance side of the business. Um, so I'm just purely focus on commercial maintenance and snow. And then I had to hire a design build salesperson to replace me. So over the course of like two years, we had to hire all these overhead positions in order to get us to the point where we could then train them, onboard them, and then grow from there. So um, we, we, we're successful in doing that. And we were able to reduce our design build from about three and a half million at its peak to now we're about a million and a half. Um, and we've grown our, our maintenance to our maintenance and snow is um, by far the biggest piece of our business at this point. So, yeah. I mean, that must, I mean, it must've been a, uh, a challenge. Cause like you said, it was a big money revenue generator and it's really where you were strong. You were, you were doing it. You were, the strongest part was you kind of bidding it out and doing all the specking and everything i assume right so yeah yeah and that was that was part of the challenge was like we were doing all that revenue but a lot of it was because i was involved in it um but then we weren't really growing like this this model of of a business that's scalable because it was really capped at what i could generate in sales um so 
it was, it was definitely like you mentioned, I, you know, I thought that, all right, I can't pull myself out of this because I'm the one that does this work. I'm the one that knows how to do it. Um, so it took a while for me for it to click in my head that, well, if I can put my energy and focus into these other pieces of the business, those can grow and it's okay. If our design build becomes something that's smaller, that one salesperson can handle because, um, you know, I was not only was I the owner, so it's a little bit easier to sell, I think, when you're the owner, but also I was working like as much as two people normally would work to sell that. So we had to reduce that size of the business, um, that piece of the business in order to grow the other sides of it. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good lesson to learn. Actually, I, you know, I'm listening to it as myself as a business owner. I don't I have 15 full time employees, not not 55. So. But there's a big piece of my own business, as I'm listening to you, where I get pulled in because I know a lot of the high high technology side of we do a lot of QuickBooks work and add-ons. So they'll come to me when QuickBooks can only go so far and they need to add like an inventory package or a CRM or, you know, these cut things to talk to it. And I'm the guy they come to in my, in my business. So, um, you know figuring out how much it's going to cost, where to find the software, you know, meetings. And, but that's probably as even though the, the revenue is much higher, it's, um, it's, it's harder, it's harder to scale. Just like you just went through, um, but our outsourced accounting and regular bookkeeping and that stuff we could scale all day. And, um, so it's, it's definitely a mind shift that even someone like myself has to go through, you know, it takes, takes time to get there though. So one day yeah. I think you wake up and go, well, I'm, I'm killing myself here. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know? Right. We tend not to live in that, that like quadrant two where it's uh, not urgent, but important. And right. Exactly. I was so used to firefighting for all those years. I just want to get out there and was addicted to urgency and just like sell the work, get it installed, deal with the client, like all that. And then, yeah. uh, you know, the, that side of the business, like you just mentioned, was the, the maintenance and the snow side of it. I was like, I literally, I'm not putting any effort into it. And it's just, it's there. And it's like, it's a much easier business model when it's reoccurring revenue. Yeah. So, but um, I was too focused on fighting the fires and, until I made that mindset shift and said, you know what, I got to live more in quadrant two. And, and you know, for, for us, it was a better business decision. I, there's people that do great with design build work. But um, it's a much harder business to scale, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You just have to have higher level skill team members. And yeah, it's just, it's harder to scale. And usually there's, a, there's some brain at the top that, uh, yeah, once yeah. you lose them possibly, then yeah, it's tough. So um, I'm just curious as far as just the, the business itself, did you have to bring in, like your management team obviously has probably changed over the years so when you first started to like today um did you have to do you is there a was there a transition in management where you had to bring in higher skilled people or different uh different skill sets like a you know with us in the early days we were like taking on clients and just figuring out how to how the back office would work and you know it, we get to a point where like oh shoot we got to get our back office really you know in place systems and you know technology and so then you bring in other people that kind of help you is that kind of how it, it worked with your business or how it's working yeah it, over the years we've found that we we do a really good job of promoting from within when we're promoting people into like a, a production manager role mm -hmm. where they okay. might oversee um 
you know, five or six crews, you know, maybe 10 to 12 people. Um, so those we've found that, you know, if we target someone that's in the field, that's doing a really good job and kind of coach them and mentor them, we can get them to move into that role and they're successful there. Um, we've also found success from outside of our industry, hiring on the, on the sales side and the accounts management side. So, um, Every one of our accounts managers and salespeople, except for one, uh, actually came from outside of the landscape industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, one of them worked for other companies in that in sort of a sales role, and then came to us, which was great. But the others have come from the restaurant industry, um, private aviation. Um, one of our one of our vendors. Uh, had another employee working for them. So, uh, so we were able to bring them in and train them, but they had that, they had that client facing like characteristics and values and so forth already. So we just had to train them on the landscape industry um, where, you know, they had the people skills down for the most part. So on the production side though, it's, it's more about like building, building the team and you know, it's more about knowing our core values well, understanding how we do the work and so forth. So it's been interesting to me to see people come up through the ranks on the production side and they can manage people well and we can promote them. And then on the sales side, we've had really good luck pulling them from, you know, wherever and, and really just getting them into a role. Was that tough initially to, to um, try to bring someone in from the outside the industry as a salesperson? Did, was that like a, just a, a necessity at the time and then it's like, hey, this works. Or did you say, hey, we're going to go out and find someone that maybe not know anything about landscaping and bring them in and make them a salesperson? What was that? <laughs> it was the the first person we brought in um, to help us with sales wasn't wasn't necessarily from you know our industry. So once we realized that that was the case, and like, yeah, we can onboard them and train them, and they don't necessarily need to know all the ins and outs of horticulture. They yeah. just really need to know how to interact with people, have soft skills, how to communicate well. Um, you know, we were more or less interested in how they, you know, how they verbalize things, how they write emails, how they correspond and, you know, some of their organizational skills than we were about if they know, you know, specific plants and turf and all that. So we've been training them through the years on that, but it hasn't, it hasn't hindered our growth and it hasn't hindered the customer interaction either because they've always had the resources from our production team who know the ins and outs of horticulture so they can, tell the client like, Hey, look, you know, I, I can get that answer for you. Just give me, you know, give me an hour, give me a day or whatever. And they can go and get the answer for the client. Um, so it hasn't hindered our growth at all. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, you know, even something to think about for other business owners, we all think, all right, Oh, I have to bring someone in that knows, you know, my business QuickBooks or bookkeeping or accounting, but it may not, may not necessarily be true. You know, like you said, if they could talk to the customer and write, you know, a good email, um, you know, speak intelligently, you know, and follow up, you know, follow through. Yeah. sounds like that's, that would work. Um, and then just, I think you initially, when we first started talking, you talked about staff, uh, you know, hiring and kind of shortages, is that affecting your industry when you have to ramp up or even like in the, the summertime, do you, do you have a core group that you, do they stay with you all year? I mean, some landscaping companies kind of lay people off, I think, in the winter. You actually ramp up in the winter because you do a lot of maintenance and snow. But um, is it tough finding employees now for you? Yeah, it's been it's been difficult for sure, especially the past two years. Um, last year, we went through most of the, of the landscape season from like April to December. We were 
eight to 10 people shy for the majority of that season. So it, it really affected what we were able to produce. Um, and in the winter, we, we used to, just like most landscape companies, we used to lay people off and mm -hmm. we decided last winter that we were going to offer our team to stay on year round. Um, we would, we would guarantee them 40 hours per week through the course of the winter. And it was just in an effort to, you know, keep them engaged and keep them on our, our team. So they weren't finding jobs elsewhere. Um, and so we, you know, we had them do tasks like uh, maintenance on vehicles. Definitely when it snowed, they did snow work. And then we had some construction work we were able to do through the winter. We had them do special projects like help us develop our safety program uh, or improve it. Same thing with our trainings, help them write, uh, sorry, they helped us to write trainings so that we could have those at the ready during the season. Um, so that was a really good program. And, and the last two winters, we've actually had 100% retention through the winter. So that's really helped us keep that core team, uh, you know, engaged. And, mm -hmm. and during the season, uh, the landscape season, when we need to ramp up and in the winter, we need to ramp up. That's when our challenges have been to, to, to pull people in. So um, we just recently hired and they're going to be starting in a couple of weeks, um, a manager of talent acquisition and culture. So oh. it's a new position that, um, I don't think many landscapers have it, but I, I hear a lot of corporate uh, companies are starting to have these, you know, folks that will focus just on culture and so forth. And so this is like quasi recruiting, but also um, really helping us making sure like safety is at top of mind. Trainings, training is an investment in the company and they're going to help us with that. And then to continue to promote and build our culture with the team. So we're bringing on this person full time just to focus on that. And hopefully it's going to they're going to help us solve that gap with, with, uh, with our, you know, eight to 10 people gap that we need in order to, right. to the revenue we're looking to do this year. We're in a little bit better spot with that. We're, we're probably three to four people shy right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's been an ongoing issue and it's just been getting worse through the pandemic. It got really bad and, and it yeah. doesn't seem like it's going to be much easier moving forward. So that's why we decided to invest in this position to help us, uh, get a little bit of an upper hand over our competition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first I, I've heard of a company like us, I mean, I'm sure the Googles of the world have these multiple people like that, but smaller companies don't. So it, that'll, that'll actually help you. Like you said, with culture and re retention, there's a lot of stuff that I think that position would be great for actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And then as far as like the future of the company, I do think of like, I've, I've talked to other companies who have grown to a certain point and then they start franchising because they feel like they have a good business model. It means things like that on your mind, or I'm just curious where you see landscape America going or growing. Do you see moving into other areas or in um, Rentham mass? I think you're, is that where you are now out of Rentham? Yeah, we're, we're based in Rentham. Um, we probably won't ever entertain the franchise model, but what we're looking into is, is a branching model. So we would have branches, uh, maybe one south of us and one west of us. Uh, we have two markets that we're looking at in, in hopefully the next uh, two to three years, at least opening up one, if not two of those branches and keeping, you know, sort of the, the main branch or the, the, you know, the corporate, if you will, in, in Rentham and then yeah. having them start as satellites and eventually turn into their own branches with a branch manager, accounts manager, and production manager um, working out of those facilities. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. It's good for growth. 
do you um what i was going to ask you earlier i think we, we just started talking about um some other things but it's really how your management team works do you got do you get together on a you know weekly or monthly or quarterly basis and kind of plan out the the, the quarter or the goal um for the year or it, you know i'm curious how that works like under the e- under the EOS method, we week like we meet weekly for like an hour and a half, and we have a very like an agenda we go through. But um, I'm just curious how you guys are doing it, and how you solve problems as a team and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, our, first of all, our leadership team there's there's five of us on the leadership team, so we meet monthly. Okay. Uh, and we have we we follow I would say probably a, a loose agenda similar to EOS where we have like an issues list and we, mm. we have a parking lot. And so we track some of that stuff um, and set up goals for the, for the next month and so forth. Um, we also, again, we meet weekly with our open book, but that also creates an environment where um, our production manager and our accounts manager for each division, let's say maintenance, for instance, the, they, they have to report their revenue and all the costs on a weekly basis. So before that meeting where they forecast their numbers, they need to have another meeting where they get together and they talk about the sales team will say, okay, my revenue for the month's going to be X. And then the production team goes, all right, well, you know, I have this amount of labor, this amount of materials associated with those jobs. So it creates an opportunity for them to talk about problems and issues that are going to pop up regarding scheduling or, um, or lack of sales or whatever. So uh, those meetings occur naturally because of that open book meeting. Um, then beyond that, like my brother and myself, so I'm, I'm also the director of sales or client care. So I have all the sales team members and accounts managers report to me. Yep. And so we have, we have uh, a weekly sales meeting. We also do check-ins usually once a week, we have a check-in each one of my salespeople with myself and then my brother who is the director of operations. He has all the production managers that report to him. So he does the same thing. They have a production meeting, but then they have individual check-ins with each of his direct reports. Mm-hmm. So we found that that coupled with like a quarterly review is, is a lot, you know, there's, it's a lot of communication back and forth, but it allows opportunities for the, the team members to talk about, you know, how things are going, gives them an, an opportunity to share if, if, if they're frustrated um, about something or if something's going really well, or if they want to talk about, you know, things at home, like personal stuff and so forth and, and an opportunity for us to understand, you know, maybe why, you know, they're acting a certain way or what's going on with them at home, mm-hmm. you know, some of that sort of health and well-being stuff comes into play with those regular check-ins. So, um, we used to just do like a yearly review for years. We just did one yearly review yeah. and we switched like three years ago to this this model where it's it's constant smaller check-ins with less discussion um, about you know like that that sort of structured one-year annual review. It's just more of like a check-in. Hey, how's things going? Give me some bright spots from this week. You know what's been going well for you, and what are some challenges? And you know it, we're in the know about everything going on at all the time, so nothing will nothing can like build up and fester and then boil over. Yeah, we, you know, we do the same thing, and it seems like it it lessens the uh, the fires that we have to put out because we know, like you said, fe- some things are faster and pop up. Like w- weekly, we're meeting, so we know ex- if something's happening. And uh, yeah, and it plus plus I think it also pushes all all our team members. We have a smaller team, but it pushes us to get things done because we know we're meeting that next whatever day. I got I got a list that I'm going to work on, so um, 
we hold each other accountable. So I think it, yeah. And, and like you said, personal stuff comes out of those meetings, like tough week issues at home, someone, someone's sick or whatever problems occur and kind of help each other out. So I think it, it, it creates a culture too. We have, um, we have a team meeting on Fridays, all of my workers are remote. So they all work at home. So how do you, how do you get a culture going when they're all by themselves in their houses? So, um, for us, we do a team's meeting for about an hour and most of the time it stretches to an hour and a half and it's people chatting and, you know, I think it's, it's promoted a lot better team and environment and culture. I think it's, so I think that's kind of cool. So what do you, um, well, let's just talk about you. I mean, we talk about the company. I think it's, I think, um, you know, I've, I learned a lot just talking to you about the open book management concept. Okay. You know, like I said, I heard about it. It was kind of popped up a couple of years back. Some there's pros and cons. Some business leaders are afraid to tell their team, like how the company's doing, which I think uh, is not, you know, the people should know and how they contribute to it and how they could benefit from it. So I think that's awesome. They're thinking it already. You know, your, your team's already created stories in their head about how the yeah. business is doing and how much money you're making, you know, as an owner. So yeah. you're better off telling them than, than letting them create stories and then, you know, make it manifest into something it's not. That's, and that's my opinion on it. I right. think you're better to be transparent. And I think even for the um, the higher ops on a team who are looking at the owner and thinking, I can go do this myself. Look at this job. He's we're making X amount. Why don't I just go do that? Well, if, if they see what's happening and, you know, play that penny game and realize, oh, yeah, there's a lot to this that I didn't really think about, you know, um, you know, that they, it, it keeps them in the fold, I think, too. You know? Yeah, yeah. So as far as you yourself, like just talk about you, like where are you from? Are you from this area, New England? And, you know, where you went to school and a little bit about your background would be great. Yeah, I grew up in Norwood, um, not too far from Rentham. I didn't travel too far. You didn't go far, yeah. No, didn't, didn't move too far. But uh, Norwood was actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most townies for years. It may still be. <laughs> Like people don't typically leave Norwood, but, um, <laughs> and the most car dealerships too. I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So I grew up there. I went to high school at Norwood high. Um, from there I graduated and went to UMass Amherst. Um, I started at the Stockbridge school of agriculture, which is okay. it's a two, two year degree, um, in landscape contracting, then went on to, UMass itself, which it's all at the same school, but there were, I had another two years uh, there to get my bachelor's in urban forestry. Um, and so from there, I went to work at that company I mentioned before, Hartney Gramont. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, growing up, my, my family was, um, you know, lower middle class, I would say, like my, my um, most of my family, like they're not, they're pretty content um, as individuals. And so I'm definitely like the black sheep out of the group, my brother and myself, where, um, they were pretty freaked out when we told them we were going to start our own business and we were going to, we were going to go for it. And like, I, my wife and I, um, who was my girlfriend at the time, we, we bought our first house when we were 22 before my parents owned a house. So that's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've been, I've always been a little bit, um, more of a risk taker than, than I was brought up with my family. So, um, and, and so at this point, like if I tell my mom, I'm going to do something, she just, she's like, I don't even want to know anymore. I don't want to hear it. Like, you know, so, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was, I had a good childhood growing up for sure. Lots of, lots of love and That's care awesome. and forth. And, and, um, 
and I did enjoy living in Norwood, but I got out as soon as I could to to move to Rentham. I just a couple of miles down the street. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit more rural. I've got a lot of acreage. I like I like kind of being out in the woods where I am. So nice. that was important to me to be able to connect with nature and kind of have some space away from um, you know neighbors. And Norwood's like a yeah. little so. Yeah, my my family was kind of lower middle class too, and it was like you know work for the government, work for you know pension you know good benefits it was never about grow a company or be an entrepreneur or, or take a risk so i i kind of you know i can empathize with probably your parents like what you went through growing up you know it was a little bit of the black sheep my own family and I, i'm still like that oh great ideas let me let's do this let's try that and yeah so yeah <laughs> it's that shiny red object syndrome um exactly that i know i have sometimes i have to rein myself in and then just as far as family, so you live in Rentham, you marry, you know, kids. Are you, I see a picture behind you. So you have two, two, it looks like. Yeah, I've got two, two girls. Um, that's an old, old photo. They're actually now 11 and 13. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm about to get in the heat of it with the, with the girls being teenagers. So um, luckily, knock on wood, my 13 year old still likes me and she still talks to me, which is great. Um, but yeah, I'm a little hesitant moving forward here to see how <laughs> how the next few years go with the girls. But um, they're both great kids. And yeah, my wife, my wife, Kristen, is involved in the business, too. Um, she she worked for years for free for us, uh, helping us with our books, doing QuickBooks and all that sort of stuff uh, while we were smaller. And then probably seven, seven or eight years ago, she came on full time. And so she's been she's been our controller and does a lot of our um, software and, and, um, you know, still runs our QuickBooks and, and our, our operating system aspire. She helps with that. So she's a, she's a smart cookie and we've been together since we were 17. Yeah. She grew up in Walpole. We nice. went to the same college together. So, um, so yeah, we've been together a long time. I'm, I'm glad to see you're still using QuickBooks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> our whole business is quick. Well, 99% of it's QuickBooks. We're starting to venture into some, a larger ERP system, uh, Acumatica, it's kind of, it's a cloud-based system for our larger companies who we go as far as we can with QuickBooks. You can go pretty far with it. And it's, you, it's a huge user base. So we, you know, we love it for our clients because easy, well, you know, it's easy to train on it. It's easy to use, but at some point it's like, you need more features, whether it's like commission tracking or you know, deferring revenue and spreading it and all these things a larger company gets into then for a larger companies, we started that started doing this other product, but yeah, 99 percent of the time we're in, I'm working in QuickBooks. So we made a huge investment in, in software, uh, two years ago, year and a half ago, actually. And, um, we signed up with Aspire who's owned by service Titan and, and they're, oh, it's, yeah. a, okay. it's a, it's a, pretty much an enterprise software where it does everything from CRM to estimating to um, tracking job costs that employees can punch in on it. And so it's nice. in our industry, it's the, it's the most comprehensive and the best technology out there. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's linked with QuickBooks pretty well, but a lot of our accounting now goes into that before it gets, um, yeah. you know, spit over to QuickBooks. Um, but we felt like for us, if we, if there's a software out there, a technology that we can, you know, give our team and say like, Hey, you know, we know how hard what we do is 
but let's make some of it a little easier by using the software as opposed to creating all these Excel spreadsheets and workarounds and all this stuff. So uh, we just said, you know what, let's go for it, buy the best technology out there and let it do some of that work for us. And it's, it's the reporting out of it's been great. And it's definitely helped us to um, get to that next level as far as understanding, you know, specific margins on jobs and how, how well we did selling and having that CRM has been great from, from, you know, yeah. the side. Yeah, I mean, too many people that I've talked to are still kind of pen and paper, you know, pencil and paper at this, you know, because they they don't want to invest in it. But I, like you said, you, to get to that next point, you need to. And and yeah, so it's I'm glad to see that you're doing it. You know. I think our, our industry is probably way behind. You know, there's a lot yeah. of industries out there that have had software for years, but for the landscape and green industry, tree companies, it's it's more or less the last five or six years it's become more common. Um, yeah. So yeah, we need to, our industry needs to speed it up a little bit with the technology. Yeah. We, we have another client, another landscaper, uh, like a tree. They, they do a lot more arbor type stuff, tree stuff and landscaping. And they went to QuickBooks online and they're using um, a third party that they found. And we're like, we, this is great. It does a lot of what you're talking about, but it links with the online version. So that's, that's where they ended up going. They went from enterprise to online and then they added this software which is helping them grow too so yeah cool all right well i'd love to uh have people find you and connect with you so i think i'm just looking here you're on linkedin you know um doug mcduff on linkedin right your um your company website do you um i think through your website you have blogs and things like that right that they could find you on or find yeah, we- you Yep. We have blogs on that. We're on Instagram, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, probably the best way to communicate with me. Um, I do respond to uh, messages on a regular basis on LinkedIn. So that might be the best way to connect. I do. I looked at your website while I was looking at it before we talked. And I do actually, I have to say that I, um, and I wrote it down here that I, I, I liked it because it, um, it, yeah, here it is here. It focused a lot more on the benefits for a client than for like, here's all the great stuff we do. Like a lot of companies, it's all about, you know, features. Hey, we do this, we do that. But yours was a lot more about, hey, here's what, you know, it can do for you. Like, here's what your lawn can look like. Here's what your hardscaping, your, you know, your backyard, all that stuff. So I, I kind of like the focus of your website. So it was nice, you know. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. All right, cool. I, hey, Doug, thanks for coming on. It's just short of an hour. I think we spent a little, little extra time, which is kind of cool. I want to thank uh, the li- people who are listening, people who may be watching this. Um, I encourage you, if, if you like it, share it, tell other people about it. Um, you can connect with me, uh, Jeff at SiegelSolutions.com. And uh, again, Doug, thank you. And this has been another episode of Leaders Who Scale. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you for joining. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at leaderswhoscale.com. Leaders Who Scale is sponsored by Siegel Solutions, providing world-class services and cutting edge tools that help businesses grow and succeed.